It's good to see everybody. Hey, let's go crazy and welcome everyone at all the campuses. Shall we just say good morning? Everybody online, hello. We're glad you're with us as well. We're in this series called God and Sexuality, which we said is like, you know, two things we don't often uh, hear being put together, maybe often enough, kind of like oil and vinegar. It makes really great salad dressing if you can get them together and shake it up a little. It's what we're trying to do, uh, and no matter how delicate and difficult it is, and it is, I mean, let's be honest, it is difficult and delicate. Uh, we're just trying to say, what, what does God's Word say about every part uh, of our lives? Um, so what we've began trying to say, and if you have missed the first two messages, I just want to urge you to go check them out. They're online. They're easy to watch, easy to find, uh, because it's all kind of one whole piece. But we, we talked about how sexuality has a divine design, and how what that means is that there's, a, there's an intentionality to, to sexuality as we are sexual beings, and, and, and the practice of our sexuality is intended by a God we can trust to be good and to have our best interest in mind and to love us. And so he gives us this beautiful expression of intimacy between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage as reflection of, of his designed intent. And, and there's just so many parts of that that we tried to unpack. So um, go back and catch all that if you would. Hey, next week I want to mention to you that um, we're going to be hearing from a special guest. My friend uh, Dr. David Bennett will be here as I sit down with him in kind of an interview format because I just want you to hear his story. Um, it's a remarkable story uh, of how he found God, God found him, and, and then subsequently how he wrestled um, and continues to wrestle with his same-sex attraction and uh, how to reconcile that with his Christian faith. He's just a deep thinker, and a, I think there's some profound things that he'll share, and uh, I think it'll be helpful and important. So that's next week. Uh, and then the week after that is something that if you've been around Mountain, you've heard of before, um, and uh, we're going to experience something called the three chairs, okay? The three chairs, and it's a great time for us to kind of check in with where we are with God. Awesome opportunity for everyone to invite a guest. Like if you're not all jazzed up about inviting a friend to talk about sex, okay, it's over in a couple weeks, right? You can, you can, we can talk about um, something uh, called the three chairs. And we'll also have baptisms that weekend. Uh, there's a baptism splash pools will be set up. I think it'll be really, really a great weekend, all right? Today, what we're going to try to do is respond. I didn't say answer, but we're going to try to respond to some questions that have come in. Um, by a text and email. Oof, I feel like I need a thousand disclaimers here to get started. You know, it's like I am no expert, okay? Um, I don't have a PhD in sex. I don't have my 10,000 hours or take that however you want. I mean, <laughs> I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you. And obviously, my perspective is very limited. Uh, I, I come as this uh, obviously, uh, you know, heterosexual, straight, married guy. Uh, uh, all I can say is, we tried hard to study well and to read widely and to listen broadly to lots of different people and have wrestled to come up with what we understand to be the best uh, biblical and God-honoring, life-giving responses. We just want to help, not so badly to help. So we'll try to give concise answers. I'm not very good at that, and um, um, we can't get to everything, okay? So 
big umbrella of mercy over, under this whole thing. And um, there's a resource page on our website that you can go look at uh, that'll help you if you want to do a deeper dive and try to study some of these things more deeply. You know, I was thinking about kind of a scripture that just felt like it for me was a helpful maybe frame to look at everything we're going to talk about today through, through that frame. And, and it was in 1 Peter 3. Can I show you the verses? 1 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. You know, it's just a powerful kind of description of the Christian life as opposed to maybe a life without God. And it says, you know, but you instead in your hearts set apart Christ as, what's the word? Lord means like master, like in charge of me, boss of me, right? So you, you are different if you follow God because you have Jesus as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you then about the hope that you've got inside of you as a believer, well, great. It says um, always be ready to explain that. But, hey, do this in a gentle and respectful way. You know, there's always... Um, there's always kind of the way of the word and the way of the world that are sometimes in opposition. But, you know, I think sometimes w when we feel like we're on solid ground, like this is what I really believe, we, we forget to be gentle and respectful. And we're, we're, we're going to remember that uh, always. And, um, you know, we live in a time when we're not very good at this as a whole. And uh, it's almost as if, if you disagree with someone, you must hate them today. It's kind of the assumption. It's, it's not the case at all. So, and, and, and one more scripture that I, that I think is so helpful is Ephesians 4. And uh, Ephesians 4 is just, again, a reminder about what the Christian life looks like when we come together and um, are, are built up together. It says, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching, will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in, say that phrase again, truth and love, that's it. And the next part adds in, growing in every way more and more like Christ. That's really the key. You know, Jesus said he came and filled with grace and truth, and so when we speak that way, we are becoming more like him, and it's important to, it's important to try to model that. Okay, so that's what we'll do. So, you ready to dive in? We'll get through a bunch of questions. Um, I don't know how you'll feel about it. I know how I feel about it, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll dive in. Okay, you ready? Here's the first one. Here's the first one. Put the first one on the screen. It says, you talked about sexual revolution like it's all a bad thing, but I feel like it's been helpful in some ways. Hasn't it done some good? This is a good question because it, it gives us a chance to kind of assess, in fact, where are we in America and really kind of all of the West, if you will, where are we and, and what is this sexual revolution thing? I think the idea is that haven't there been parts of this that have been actually good for women or hasn't it freed us from certain kinds of oppressive practices? Um, so let's think together for a few minutes about the, the so-called sexual revolution or liberation. What did it accomplish? Where has it landed us? Um, because the, I think the perception is that it is good, and I love that the, the question has the word feel in there, because I think a lot of us have lots of feelings about it, but let's, um, let's move past that. Has, has it made us 
How has it left us? What, what is the result of it? Has it made us happier, better humans, and so forth? So let me start by just saying, one of my favorite definitions of truth is reality. Like truth is reality. Like it's what actually is the case in the real world. All right? So in other words, when you, uh, you know, reality, I, I may believe, as I've said before, I may believe I can fly. I'm going to just jump off the, the stage right now and kind of fly around the room. And you may agree with me. A lot of people may believe it. Um, and I may deeply desire to fly. But none of those things, my desires, how many people think so, really affect what is actually the case. Reality has a way of, of um, hitting us in the face. And there are ideas out there. So if you say truth is, is reality, then lies are unreality. That is, they don't square with what's actually the case. It does, it's not congruent with the world that actually exists. That's what a lie is. And, and so there are ideas out there about lots of things, including sexuality, including what will make us happy and produce a flourishing life. And some of them are truth and some of them are lies. And some of the lies turn out to be very widely accepted and passed off as truth and frequently repeated. But if they're not congruent with reality and they're not congruent with as a Christian, we would say the Creator's designed intent because that is, in fact, reality, that divine design. It's not going to lead. A, we're trying to live then at odds with reality. We're trying to live a lie, and it's always going to lead not to the flourishing we hope for, but to struggle and problems. So with that kind of understanding, let me just do, let's do a quick survey. Because I'm like, what do you mean sexual revolution? It's like the water we're swimming in. Some of us aren't even aware. So let's, do, let's back up a little bit and say, so, so where are we today? Um, so we live in this time uh, uh, when the sexual liberation movement that started, like, say, in the 1960s in the U.S., set a sort of cascade in motion of lots of different things. Let me just kind of recap for us so we can kind of picture this, because some of us, like, grew up in it. We didn't know it's different than anything that existed before. So there was a long-standing moral consensus that sex belonged in marriage. That just was accepted. But Part of the liberation and the sexual revolution is moving away from that, and we began to advocate more of a free sex approach, a promiscuous approach where sexual happiness then um, was separated from marriage, kind of step one, okay? At the same time, we saw a bunch of other things happen. We saw the advent of birth control. We saw legalized abortion, which increasingly separated sex from procreation, which was often assumed to be you know, linked together. That, led, that was followed shortly by no-fault divorce so that marriage was less and less thought of as a covenant binding for a lifelong you know, issue between two people, but a contract kind of between two parties, which increasingly began to separate sex from intimacy as well. So it entered more casual sex, even sex with strangers and depersonalized objects on a screen became more common, which began to separate sex from the concept of fidelity because a hookup culture is not about faithfulness, it's about personal gratification. Stay with me. Um, which led to the kind of Tinder and hookup sort of culture, which increasingly separates sex from even romance because now it's just kind of a hobby or getting your needs met 
which has moved us to a revolution which has increasingly separated sex from the male-female binary and normalized more same-sex sex and the current transgender wave uh, which wants to separate even gender from biological sex, which for centuries was assumed to be joined, gender and, 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 and biological sex, and the up-and-coming and very fast-growing polyamory movement, which wants to normalize sex beyond two-person relationships. And th- there are other things that in this cascade we could identify, but I'm just trying to illustrate that whatever a person might think or say about all these things, it's revolutionary. And that's why it's referred to as uh, the, the sexual revolution in this short period of time. We're living in it. And it's driven by a very distinct sort of um, set of ideas, ideology, you could call it. And in fact, almost in creator-like words, it's being labeled good. It is good. It is very good. And what's interesting to me is that almost no one seems to be asking what what I would think would be a really important question, like, is it working? Like, is it making us better people? Like, is there more human flourishing as a result of these ideas? Are these ideas in that regard true? Are they congruent with reality? As a Christian, we might say, is it true? Like, does it match with God's design? But nobody really seems to be allowed to ask that. It's just assumed. And what's so interesting to me beyond that is that there is a mountain and a growing mountain of data, like hard science, which on the one side of our mouth we're all saying is so authoritative, but yet science is producing all kinds of evidence that the current revolution is actually failing to deliver at every single point it promised. But no one seems to be paying attention. And the truth of the data could be summarized this way. That when sex becomes casual, there are casualties. That's pretty much the summary. And sociology is catching up to theology in this regard. There are lots of articles and studies and stuff coming out, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, other, not necessarily, shall I say, Jesus-centered magazines and, and publications, are coming up with lots of stuff in the science and the arenas of biology and sociology, and it echoes so much of biblical teaching. Let me give you one example. Um, a recent article in Time magazine. It was titled, Why There's No Such Thing as Casual Sex. Christine Emba, not a believer in Christ, um, has what everyone considered come out with this radical proposition. Listen to this. It's very radical. In her book, Rethinking Sex, Emba suggests that sex is inherently not casual. It's not just a physical interaction, even if we try to believe the modern assumption that it's like any other social activity. Emba argues that sex, in fact, involves the spirit and the body, and that the sexual liberation, which promises all kinds of fun, no-strings, easy-to-access consensual sex, has actually left us miserable. Emba's a columnist for the Washington Post, and she believes that thinking about sex and our sexual partners casually and commoditizing it, as we have through our dating apps and whatnot, um, has actually created a rather bleak romantic landscape. Quote, too many people are having too much of the kind of sex that saps the spirit and makes us feel less human, not more. Sex that leaves us detached, disillusioned, and dissatisfied. Well, there you go. What a radical proposition. Now that Time Magazine has said it, 
perhaps will believe it. Maybe the headline should have read, Experts Discover What Anyone Who's Read the Bible Has Known for Thousands of Years, because that's what it is. It's an echo of the biblical truth. So whatever good, and there perhaps might be some good we could wrestle out of the sexual liberation movement, we also have to have the honest truth. And there's mountains of data that says the happiness levels in the U.S. have been declining very precipitously from a certain point in history. Guess when it was? 1960s. Now, that's, not, that's correlation, not causation, but it's there. Suicide rates, same thing. Look at the graphs. Look at the maps. When did it start? Boom. Uh, there's a couple that wrote this very sweet uh, note telling me, or kind of asking, half telling, half asking about their their decision. They're they're planning to be married, and their decision to live together. Um, and they said, you know, our parents aren't too fond of it, but we know it'll be better for us financially. So we'll be better off in our marriage. We'll learn to trust each other over time this way. We'll figure out if we're compatible sexually, so it makes more sense. And. Um, as they explained all that to me. But what, it made me think of this data, you know, because actually, you know, secular studies for about a decade now or more have been saying those who cohabitate before marriage are actually, the data just says, less likely to get married, less likely to be happy when they do, less, more likely to have long-term trust issues, and more likely to divorce. So that, that's what the data says. That's not some moralist or preacher or how about the research on oxytocin and vasopressin? Those are the two chemicals that are released in your body during sex that bring our attachment system online and cause us to really bond with another person. It's one of the reasons that we're drawn to sex is we want to bond deeply with a person. You know what we're learning now through, through research is that the more different sexual partners you have, the less capacity your body has for intimacy. Isn't that interesting? Like we were promised that more sex with more people would be more fun or happiness, but it's actually less of the one thing that we're actually most driven and designed for, which is intimacy. Or the data showing that um, sex reassignment surgery and hormone therapy, which is now uh, being really strongly encouraged among many young people who aren't old enough to even drive a car or vote, um, but it's not act the data says it's not producing emotional health but we're not allowed to ask any questions emotional health was the main reason for having some of those surgeries so it just seems like there's something stronger going on here no one's asking about the epidemic of sexual addiction and how it's gutting marriages and families and futures so much data on it or pornography and how it's becoming increasingly violent and misogynistic and how it's now tilted toward its newest audience, which is children. So no, it's not been helpful and liberating and empowering to women and children. No one's paying attention to the fact that sexual abuse and sexual assault are getting worse, not better. Statistically, one out of every four women will experience violence sexually at some point in their life. Let that number sink in. No one's talking about the rape culture and the raging problem it is even on the most elite progressive campuses. So these are, I'm just saying, this, these are just the facts which are conveniently left out of the conversation which ought to make us not angry but sad because so many people that have been promised liberation are actually more enslaved because we've chucked centuries of wisdom around sexual desire and someone somewhere might need to ask, how's that working out for you? 
How's it working out when we act like we're basically animals with instincts and try to live out our sexuality without the constraints of moral boundaries? How is it working out when we treat sex as just play for grown-ups? How is it working out when we say, don't be held back by marriage or sexual norms or even gender itself because that they're all just constructs created by a bunch of elites to oppress people so they can stay in power? So rather be true to yourself Fulfill your own feelings and desires. Follow the ideology. This is the sexual revolution. And the, part of the problem is so much of it doesn't actually correspond with reality. It isn't actually true in that sense. And, and, and reality has a funny way of not conforming itself to our feelings or our desires or, or the majority rule. No matter how widespread it may be, it can't produce the kind of happiness and the kind of deeper joy and so in a society that's just kind of assumed to write off God and Christian religion is all this kind of old-fashioned, antiquated stuff, we've been offered a different alternative, which is not leading us where we want to go. A question that came related to this was this, what's the big deal about casual sex? I've had sex with some partners, and it doesn't seem to affect me, and I think this is the key, like seem to affect me. Like it might not at first, but over time, casual sex leads to casualties, because sex, by its, in, by its intended design, was this self-giving of oneself in the safe boundaries of a covenantal relationship where we're locked in like a cage match and I can therefore give myself to you in marriage. You know, in the Bible, the, the word for no is yada in the Hebrew, yada. Adam, it says, knew Eve. It's a euphemism for the one flesh sexual intimacy. It's the thing we long for the most is to truly know someone and be known by them, which is then expressed in God's view in this self-giving act of sexual engagement. But when we remove all of the strippings of around that and sin is just love turned in on itself and I begin to look at sex as a way to gratify my own desires and it flips it on its head and by definition, casual sex can't provide the deepest things we're looking for. Statistically, there's, this is sort of humorous to me. They, they did a poll, um, massive poll actually, about who's having the best sex, who's happier with their sex life. It's a kind of a you know, fun little thing to take. You know, I'll, you know. So it's like, who's having the best sex? Who's out there having the best sex and who by their self-estimation? What do you suppose they discovered? Did, do you think it was the young kids uh, running around to the clubs and hooking up? Do you suppose it was the one-night stands and the athletic types with all the sexy bodies and the, was it the people swinging and having indiscriminate sex? You know who it was? This is a secular study. I'm sure it really bugged them to have to print it. But it was the devoted Christian couples who went to church regularly. How boring. What a dumb result. I mean, but then I thought, then I thought, wow, that's a new marketing slogan for us maybe, you know. It's like, <laughs> I don't know how we can milk that. Work on that. Come up, you know, hey, want better sex? Come to Mount... No, I, I don't know. I don't know where, that, where, you, where you go with that. And I shouldn't tell you this. I should not tell you this. My wife's going to be mad at me for saying this. But there, there, someone said, I got it. You know, you just say, we're not Pentecostal, but we still have <laughs> plenty of tongues and laying on a hand. So there, I said it. So, all right. Ugh. All right, let's go on to the next question. Go on. Put the next one up there. Some of you are like, I just found my church, honey. Let's. All right. So the next question, it seems like if God made us, next question, it seems like if God made us and I have these super strong sexual feelings, that fulfilling them isn't wrong. 
How can God give me these desires and then turn around and tell me not to have them? This is a really good question and a very fair question. And I think a question that a lot of us have at one level or another. Whatever our orientation may be, our, you know, what do we do? So th- behind it is really this question. Are all of our feelings and desires from God? Are all my desires good? This is a dividing line in our society on this question. Does having strong feelings and desires mean I'm going to be happiest if I fulfill them? These are really big questions. In short, the answer is no, not all feelings are from God. We're living in a world that obviously is corrupted by what we sometimes call the fall, where sin just gets in and distorts everything, even good stuff. So yes, God made us and created us and has given us all these beautiful desires, but some of them get disordered and kind of screwed up. And the Bible reminds us, man, your heart is deceitful. And sometimes you can think something is right and it's not. And our desires get disordered. That's why the Bible talks about the flesh. Like it's like a part of our innate desire that makes us feel like I want to do this. And God's Spirit is saying, there's a better, fuller way to reflect your humanity. And it's over this way. And those two are at odds in spirit and the flesh. And, 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 and so, I mean, there are, time, I mean I, there are times I feel like slapping someone. Yeah. And it kind of would feel good, I think, you know. But maybe, maybe I shouldn't, you know. But it's so strong. Doesn't that mean God gave me that desire? And the answer is, well, no, not every desire is from God. And just saying I really feel it strongly and therefore I need to pursue it or it'll be bad for me is bad logic. It's bad Christianity, and it's actually bad for humanity, whether you're a Christian or not. And of course, remember, now the problem isn't that you might feel like slapping someone. The, the issue is, did you slap them or not? If you, when we give full vent to our feelings, that's usually where the issue comes in. So the, the, the Bible doesn't really talk about how temptation is a sin. It doesn't say that, it, it says it's the action, and it's the same in our sexuality. So if you're married, right, newsflash for all you who are about to get married, you will still find yourself having feelings and desires for people who are not your spouse. They can be very strong. They can be very charged and very excited. If you're a, if you're a young person or a single person and you're alone and you just want, you know, and, and you're with someone and they start to, to flatter you and bond with you and seduce you and you may feel all kinds of things, whatever your attraction might be, same sex, opposite sex, whatever, but when it leads beyond what that created design of God is to an action, it will lead to a kind of sorrow. So it's hard enough to curb some of our desires and sort out which ones are from God without telling ourselves that all of them automatically must be fulfilled. It reminds me of that old song by Debbie Boone. Some of you old-timers remember her. Good grief, you're so old. So is she. She's probably dead now. She's probably, I mean, it's an old song. Do you remember this song? It can't be wrong if it feels so right. I used to sing that song in my house, and then I realized, you know, oh, I've learned it, it can. Definitely it can still be wrong even though it feels right. At, tell, uh, tell that to some close friends who, in a moment where it felt so right, they forfeited years of trust that they'd built in their marriage because it felt right and it wasn't right and it brought so much harm and pain. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he felt like doing it. 
In fact, he said, I don't want to do this. I don't desire this at all. My desire is to go for this. But at the end of the day, he obeyed the Father. Why? Well, because it's what love actually required. And there are times when if you want to stay married, husbands, you've you got you to gotta love your wife, and it may not be what you want at all. Wives, same. Want to keep your integrity, singles? Want to... Save your self-respect and your joy and beat down some shame that might rise up in your life. It's often going to come back for all of us to, to saying not what I want and to remember the words of Jesus. I mean, this is the most unpopular thing I could say, so I'll just put it in the mouth of Jesus because that's what he said. Matthew 16 says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. It's a part of following Jesus that's not about getting what I want. We've made a consumer out of all of us and we brought it right into the church where now we want the church to produce all these things for me and if I'm not happy, I go somewhere else. And if Jesus doesn't tell me what I want and coddle me and affirm everything about me, I'm not okay with it. And let me just tell you what, there's a whole lot of us, many of us, maybe, I don't know, all of us, I don't know, live every day with a strong drumbeat of sexual temptation and desire pulsing in the depths of our being. It's true of many Heterosexual Christians, get my gay friends, married singles, people are going to be challenged and struggle to live up to the sexual ethics of Jesus, to be faithful to our spouses, to, 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 to exercise what is described as sexual self-restraint, but that's part of what it means to follow Jesus, chastity, to live within God's design. So saying yes to Jesus means saying no to ourselves and sometimes some other sexual partners, but it doesn't mean missing out, getting robbed, coming up short. That's part of the lie of the ideology that says if you don't have a great sex life, you don't have a life. You don't miss out because at its very, very best, marriage, singleness, sex, all of it still leaves us longing for something more. And those unfulfilled longings are meant to point us not to another man or woman or encounter, but to the one who made us all. They're meant to draw us into relationship with God through Christ. And so I encourage you, I invite you to consider this radical way of living where Jesus says, deny yourself to follow me. And maybe it involves some areas of our sexuality. Holy means different. And it probably means different in our sexuality. John Mark Comer says it this way, sex is the primary test of our generation's fidelity to the way of Jesus or the way of the world. We'll see. As we're all being discipled and led one way or another, followers of Jesus are going to follow what is called sometimes traditional sexuality, which in our day and age is radical. It was radical when Jesus introduced it and when he echoed it, and it's radical again today. Be radical. All right. Ready to move on? Good, me too. Next question says, I'm a, I agree with everything you've been saying about sex and its limits, but I think I'm addicted. I can't stop. I don't want to keep doing this stuff, but it's really difficult. My heart goes out to whoever wrote that and to the many, many people who didn't write it, but who could be saying right now, that's my question. Sexual addiction is a thing, and it's way more prevalent, I think, than most people realize. And it's a, like all addiction, it's a cycle of bondage, and it 
kicks us into shame, and then to relieve that shame, we have to engage again, and then we feel more shame, and then we engage again, and it kicks us down this spiral with increasing intensity, but less enjoyment, and like the old saying goes, we're only as sick as our secrets. And so as Adam and Eve hid in the garden, we still hide, and this thing thrives in the dark, and so our invitation would be to everyone who relates to that question, if you wonder about this, it would be come to the light. It would be come out of the shadows and trust that Jesus is there waiting and get some help from other supportive Christians. This church has got so many people in it who know your story, who have lived it or living it now and have found so much help and support. And we've got all these things baked in to what's going on around here. We've got a group, groups in Celebrate Recovery, one called Unintended Journey, some new care groups of people who can come around you and remind you that Jesus already knows everything and he still loves you and there is hope and there is freedom and there is light and life on the other side of this bondage. But you need a higher power. The fact that you're still where you are proves that. And the higher power's name is Jesus. Hope you'll come to the light. Next question. If I become a Christian... Will God cure or change my sex attractions? We don't know where this person's coming from or what they're referring to exactly, but I think the safest answer is maybe God can do what he wants, but not necessarily. That's probably my best shot at an answer. Um, you know, completely removing attractions or reorienting our orientation is very unusual and certainly not something that happens a lot, it's not guaranteed, but helping each of us know what to do with our attractions is where God specializes. And that's part of the Christian life. Yeah, so nothing requires your temptations to disappear after coming to Christ. Just who you are, whatever your orientation and desires are, is not, is not like, uh, you're not violating something simply by existing, okay? Nobody is. And how this happens, I don't understand. I don't know. You know, I mean, there's alcoholics that, that drank for years and then they met Jesus and they'll tell, they'll tell you. I don't have an, I have never had a desire to drink another day in my life and they're just complete. And there's others like, man, it's still a struggle, but I'm still sober. And both give glory to God and they're very different experiences. And I think it can be the same in our area of sexuality. God may or may not remove your attractions, but he will certainly help you with your actions. And greater still, he'll lead you to find ultimate fulfillment in him. All right, let's go on. Ready to go on? Whew. When my boyfriend and I are together, we want to touch and get physical. How far is too far for the Christian? What, we're out of time? We're, we're, we're over? I got to go? Okay. Jeez. This is the what am I allowed to do question. How far can I go? Is it first base, second base, third base? What, what, what is the deal here? And I don't know how old you were asking this question, but I'm really glad you are. And it's a great question. It's a fair question. And I know a lot of people that wish they'd thought more seriously about a question like that um, at an earlier time in their life because they have some regrets around this sort of thing. But it's very, very, very tricky to answer this question, isn't it? Um, because you're looking, it's like, it's like I all have this tendency to look for a line. Because if I know where the line is, then I can get very, 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 very close to it. 
right? And that's kind of the nature of the question. It's like, where's the line so I can get right up there and flirt and run along the edge of it? It reminds me of this thing I saw on social media. It's this whole thing. Maybe you've seen it. There's this kind of uh, big, uh, uh, dumb-looking sheep prancing along the edge of this ditch, this ravine, perilously close to this culvert. And the shepherd's yelling at him to get away from the edge, and he's come running after him. And sure enough, the sheep falls in, can't get out. He's on his side just sitting there. There's this huge struggle for the sheep to get out of there, and the shepherd farmer is pushing him up there and finally gets him out. And the shepherd can't even get out to get a hold of the thing before it toddles along right next to the edge and sure enough slips in again, and this time breaks his leg. And that, that's, a, that's a little bit of the problem with a question like this, like how close can I get to the line? It's a little slippery in there. I mean, a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of well-meaning people that have kind of just tried to, you know, done like that sheep. It kind of, they, it, the, being close, as close as you can to the line is, 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 is tricky. So it's hard to answer. What is it, touching? Is it petting? Is it, you know, is it oral? Is it grinding? It's like, oh, my gosh. You need a rule? We need a, we need a rule? My mom had rules. My mom was good at rules. Um, um, you know, she said if a swimming suit touches it, you don't. It's like, okay, I, I can understand that. Um, but whatever the rule is, you know, we'll find a way to get it. Rules have a limit. So I don't know, maybe a better question. If, I would think maybe if a person's old enough to be asking this question, they're probably old enough to ask maybe even a better question, which is, who am I becoming by what I'm doing? Like, is it leading me closer to Jesus or further away? Is it, is it honoring God in this relationship or not? Maybe that's just, and I know some of you are like, come on, make a rule. But I, I'm just, I don't know. I think it might be a better question. Let me just, can I read a bunch of scripture to you? Let's just, and by the way, there's no rule in the scripture. <laughs> some of you are like, shoot. Okay, here we go. First, First Thessalonians 4, just beautiful here. It says, one final word, friends. We ask you, actually urge you, that you keep on doing what we've told you to please God. Like we already know some stuff. So let's just keep doing that. Not in a dogged religious plod, like don't make a legalistic rule about everything, but in a living, spirited dance, like your life with God is more than rules. So you know the guidelines we laid out for you from the Master, I mean Lord Jesus. God wants you to live a pure life, so keep yourself from sexual promiscuity. So interesting how often for those people, keeping a holy, pure life had to do with their sex lives too. Each of you will control their own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion, as is common among those who know nothing of God. So if you don't know God, you know you got one way to go. But if you do, man, this is important. So don't run roughshod over the concerns of your brothers and sisters. So you might have to think about them too. Like, so it involves you, your future, your holiness, the other person. Their concerns are God's concerns, and he will take care of them. And then I love this last part. We've warned you about this before. God hasn't invited us into a disorderly, grungy life. No, but into something holy and beautiful, as beautiful on the inside as it is on the outside. So it's about who you are inside. And if you disregard this advice, you're not offending your neighbors. You're rejecting God who's making, of you, a, making you a gift of his Holy Spirit. So it's like at the end of the day, this isn't about you and your partner. It's about you and God. That's all I got. Let's move on. <laughs> Why does God care about my sex life? That's a fair question. Like, why should God care about who I sleep with and what I do behind my own closed doors? The, the only thing I can think to kind of say in response to that is 
because God is all about relationship and he really does want all of you. He wants all of us. Like he wants all of me and all of you. And he wants you to be able to flourish. And when we hold back from him and still hope to get the joy and the deep peace that he promises, it just, it just doesn't work. So if you're not a Christian and you're not at all convinced that Jesus is Lord and Savior, then you, you really are free to audit all of this. Like 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, what, what do I have to do with judging anyone outside the faith? I'm not a politician here trying to legislate morality on somebody. I'm, it's not what we're about. I'm just a pastor trying to dish truth to people who say, I want to know how to follow Jesus. And, and that's what I would say in this area. You know, by the way, if you're not a Christian, I hope some of this has had the ring of truth to you and would at least merit you know, leaning in and looking a little further at it. But if you are a Christian, then it's a reminder that you're someone who said, I need and want Jesus as my Savior, and to remember that it always comes bundled with him as your Lord as well. He's your Lord. And if we're honest as Christian people, sometimes we love the Savior part. Give me more comfort. Give me more strength. Give me more presence. Give me more love. But I don't want you telling me what to do. Stay out of that area. It reminds me of the Crusades, that horrible, horrible, embarrassing part of human history and Christian history where politics and faith got all jumbled up together in a way that people were killed in the name of God. And there were Christian soldiers, I'm told, that were baptized before they went to war. And they would, as they were being dunked beneath the water, they would hold their sword up in their hand out of the water so we wouldn't go under leaving that last part because it's like, God, I know, what, I know you probably wouldn't approve what I'm about to do with this, but so I'm not going to baptize that part. You can have the rest of me, but not that part. And I think sometimes I, I think we still behave that way a little bit. Like I, I feel like some Christians, maybe, maybe myself at times, it's like I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm yours, Lord, except my mouth because I want to say what I want to say about my politics and I don't care what Jesus has to say about how I act and speak. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get baptized, I'm going to hold my wallet up out because that part, I don't care what you have to say about how I save or how I spend or give my money and, and we do sometimes the same thing with our sexuality my friends I, I, I see it where I, I don't want you to be lord of this of my life I'm I'm not surrendering that idea I have a different idea I like these other the ideology that's out there I have these strong desires I I I, I feel like other people, there's so many people that will think I'm crazy and it's very difficult to surrender all of me to Jesus which is one of the beautiful things, by the way, when we have baptism in a couple of weeks. Actually, uh, yeah, two weeks. We baptize by immersion around here. That's the way they did it, and as we can tell in the Bible. But think of the power of baptizing someone under the water. Think of that. It's like my head goes under the water. It's baptized. And I, I, I'm saying I devote my mind. I want to think differently in this world because of Jesus. My eyes go under. I want to be able to see people and issues the way Jesus would. You know, my hands go under the water so I can come up and say, I, I want to serve with my life somehow how Jesus would lead. My feet go under the water because I want to go wherever you want me to go. And, and not to be too graphic, but friends, our sexual organs go under the water. They're immersed. And we say, Jesus, I, I know you want all of me. I surrender that part to you too. I surrender that part to you too. Listen, I, we got to stop. I, I, I know that 
Some of this may be very difficult. Some of you may be offended or even angry or hurt by something. Maybe, and part of that's because I said it so ineloquently or in a, cal- a way that was just not right. And for that, I would be very, very sad and sorry. But I also know I've been doing this long enough to know that sometimes when you feel certain things inside of you, it's also just good old-fashioned conviction. And sometimes that conviction can be a signal, not just to be offended or angry, but to pay attention to it. Because friends, listen, every single one of us, we all have so much work to do to surrender all of us to Jesus, all of me, all of you to Jesus. And to come humbly and ready to do that. And if you're ready to do that, I just urge you to do it today. And let me warn you of something. Whenever we have this sense of conviction inside of us, the next thing that comes is the deceiver who deceived us into things to begin with. Now, our enemy turns into the accuser. He gets us into it, and then he turns around and says, oh, you're dirty, you're bad, you're wrong, you did that, you want that, you are that. He holds it over our head. You're a bad person. God's disgusted with you. And if you, some of us are, you're, you're caught up in something right now, or you've got stuff that's hanging hard over your head like, ah, oh, and you wonder if God would ever receive you. And the good news is yes. There's good news in Jesus. His compassion and grace is bigger than our sin ever would be. And he never once scorned a sexual issue or person. He never, he always kind of was gravitated toward those people. And John chapter 4 tells about how he met a woman at a well one day. She was, she was there because she was probably a sexual outcast. No, none of the other women went to the well at noon, we're told. You know, it's middle of the day, it's hot. She couldn't be around them because she had this past. And Jesus shouldn't have been talking to her because, you know, people were going to talk. But he cared more about what she might say to him than what other people would say about him. And he already knew her whole story. He knew about the five scars on her broken heart, each from a man in her past that left her more empty than the jar she brought to that well. He knew all about it. Shacking up with the new guy right now, he knew it five guys, not probably because she was a sex addict, but probably because she was thirsty in a deeper way. Desperate for real, true, lasting love and looking for it in a man to fulfill what only God can provide. And Jesus sees right through it, just like he sees through all of our stuff. He sees through all of it. And he didn't see a loose woman or a sinful woman like all the other people did. He saw his sister, he saw a beautiful daughter of God and he offered her what we all are thirsty for, which is living water. Drink of this water, he says, you'll never thirst again. And all that brokenness and the nights of crying herself to sleep and the pain and the regret and the sorrow and the shame and all of it was found in that moment. She's like, She wanted to tell everybody, like, he knows everything about me, and he loves me still. That's what she said back in her village, and it's a beautiful thing when in the midst of sexual escapades of any kind in our lives, we find the living water and stop being thirsty for something that can never satisfy Supposedly a whole series of messages on sex. You know what? It turns out it's really about Jesus. 
and deciding whether or not, whether we're really ready to deny ourselves and surrender to him, but to deciding if he's enough. If he's enough. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ocean of your love that washes over us and around us. And we pray that we would find it in ourselves to trust the voice uh, that you give us about our lives, our bodies, our sex, above whatever voices come to us. And to figure out a way to do it with grace and truth for ourselves and others. Keep us humble and tender. And now, will you have us as we surrender all of ourselves to you? We pray in Jesus.